Welcome to episode six of the ITC Entertain the World podcast. And rather than be predictable and do the prisoner as episode six, we're doing The Saint. Now, The Saint starred Roger Moore as Simon Templer and production ran from 1962 to 1968. There were 71 black and white episodes and 47 colour episodes. And in this podcast, we'll be focusing on the black and white episodes. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Marshall. Hi, Chaz. And Al Smudge. Hello, folks. So I suppose we should say, really, that The Saint is the most iconic ITC series. It's the longest running, 118 episodes in total, four of which were two-parters and edited together and released theatrically. It always seemed to be on in the 60s. It's one of those shows that I think that when people look back on 60s television always comes up. It was a huge hit for ITV, huge hit for Lou Grade all around the world and probably made Roger Moore the household name that he would later become. I suppose we should go back to Charteris, Leslie Charteris, who was the creator of The Saint. Saint started out in novels, I think it was in the late 20s. 1928. Enter the Tiger, 1928. Well, I suppose, I mean, one of the things is obviously The the Saint was such a long-running series of short stories and novels, and there are lots of different saints. And I think one of the interesting things with the ITC series is you get a bit of each. So there is the, the English Robin Hood with a gang, which is really how... Templar starts out. You then got a sort of almost a Anglo-American. There's a secret agent helping the Allies during the war, and then there's this sort of solitary cosmopolitan character in the later books. And you have got a mixture of all of them, which I think helps explain the wonderful variety we get in the ITC series. I get the feeling he was something of a precocious personality, a bit of a a strong personality, probably a Marmite person if you met him face to face. I I get the feeling that he was as protective of his character as Ian Fleming would try to be with James Bond. And I I think both men share a degree of sort of snobbery about things, particularly when you look at the enthusiasm with which Chartres began his relationship with the television series when it eventually got off the ground. And then as the years rolled by, how more and more cutting he became and, and dismissive he became of it, despite the show's amazing success. So I, I think he looked down his nose at the medium a bit. And there's an irony, isn't there, in that he'd worked in Hollywood. He'd worked mm. at a time when the moral code came in, in 1930. So he was well aware that considering TV moral codes were even stricter than film, that his saint, his dagger-wielding saint, was never going to be the one that appeared on TV, that it involves interpretation, adaptation, uh, things are going to be cut, things are going to be added, and yet he doesn't seem to have been 
conducive to that when he sort of uh, comments on the show, which seems strange. A little bit of prehistory really is that quite a few people had tried to get the television rights for the same, including Roger Moore himself, as he explained to me in a DVD audio commentary we did in 2005. So I tried to buy the rights of the saint, that was back in 56, and uh, make a television series. Uh, uh, and Leslie Charteris at that time was not interested in the rights being sold, or he wasn't yeah. interested in me buying them. Charteris was initially reluctant to license the saint as a TV series, from what I understand, but he slowly came around to the idea. And in early 1961, Harry Allen Towers, who is a producer who ran Towers of London Productions, managed to have a phone call with Charteris and start negotiations to get a series off the ground. Both men were living in the US, but Towers had to flee the US on a trumped up charge. Anyway, that left the field still wide open. And that's where we begin to get to the first initial stages of the TV series that we know and love, the ITC series, The Saint, was when John Paddy Carstairs, who was another film producer, director, introduced Bob Baker and Monty Berman to Leslie Charteris in the autumn of 61. And they found that Charteris was warming to the idea of The Saint as a television series. Bob Baker explained this in more detail on a DVD audio commentary we did together in 2005. And through a friend of ours, um, a director called John Paddy Carstairs, uh, was a friend of Leslie Charteris. So um, I arranged through John Paddy Carstairs to have lunch with Leslie Charteris and I managed to talk him into letting us have an option on The Saint. This is where it gets really interesting because once they got that permission, I've just found out in a newly discovered interview with Monty Berman that the first people that they approached were the BBC. Now that absolutely floored me. I only found out this on Thursday because I've never read that anywhere. And this was from an interview that Monty Berman had done himself, reflecting about his film career and in particular The Saint. And reading it through, it's, it's not like he got confused because he goes on to later mention Associated Rediffusion and some other ITV companies. So that's really big news to me. I mean, it's not in any of the history books. I mean, that would have, The Saint as a BBC series back then would have been hugely different, wouldn't it? I mean, I presume we'd be talking about something far more sort of theatrical, presumably mm -hmm. studio bound. I mean, actually, had they got Roger Moore playing the part, it might still have worked. I mean, this is all hypothetical, isn't it? But um, considering the fact that BBC correct me if I'm wrong, had no history at that point of being interested in that sort of action-adventure type series. It, it seems an odd sort of suitor. Looking at it in terms of what they tried to do with contemporary drama at the BBC back then, I'm thinking very much in terms of the Francis Durbridges that mm. they did around that time. Uh, and it was very sort of, as you say, theatrical, because Dur Durbridge was theatrical. The Durbridges were, were as old and as creaky as some of the original saints would have been. So it would have been a very different beast, I suspect. Still really fascinating though. But moving on from that, they then approached Associated Rediffusion, but they were turned down by Brian Tesla when he heard the proposed budget was £15,000 an episode. They also went to ABC, who were producing The Avengers, and again got turned down. 
And it was through the film composer Stanley Black that Baker and Berman ended up meeting Lou Grade at a charity dinner. Bob Baker sat next to Lou and said, I've got the rights for the saint. And Lou loved the saint, so he said, come to my office. Here's Bob Baker again from the DVD audio commentary we recorded in 2005. I went and saw Lou Grade, who immediately jumped at the idea of, um, of making the Saint series and sent me across to uh, Florida, where Leslie Charters was living, to try to finalise the deal, which I did. And um, that's how we got the, right of the rights to uh, make the Saint. So Lou Grade agreed to finance it. Here's Bob Roger and Johnny talking about the show's budget per episode. What was it, about £25,000 or something? Uh, something about that, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. That was just Bob's salary. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly wasn't mine. So there's Associated Rediffusion balking at £15,000, and Lou's turned around straight away and almost doubled it, which I think speaks volumes for uh, Lou again in, in what he was doing and the way he saw things. It's a great leap of faith because what you have to remember, of course, is that up until this point, Berman and Baker were essentially Tempian films, which was a low-budget British bee producer. They're fairly routine bees for the most part, and they produced some of the, the sort of jump-on-the-bandwagon hammer-style, gory, but slightly lighter horror movies. So when you consider you've got Brian Tesla saying no to 15K and then instantly you've got Lou Grade doubling the budget, he must, he must have had something very specific in mind. I guess the thing is that unlike Danger Man, you haven't got the risk in terms of the material. You've already got, you know, over 100 short stories and novels to choose from. And I guess this is what partly why Lou Grade had Patrick McGuinan in line because obviously Danger Man had stopped production at that point and McGowan had been highly successful as John Drake. So I guess in Lou Grade's mind, he's thinking the Saint, successful product already, you know, in film, radio, comic strip, books, plus Patrick McGowan equals success. Uh, would that have been his sort of equation? I guess so, because you, you've got very much an, an established hero. There was, uh, I don't know what the publication numbers were, but the Saint shifted a lot of units and it was sort of the bond of its time. It was running from the late 20s all the way through and he was quite a prolific writer. He was churning them out and, and there was a hell of a following for them. You can read some of them today and they're still not too bad. Obviously, there, there are certain anachronisms with the modern thinking in there. But, uh, you know, yeah, you, you've got an instant package, instant product, really. Part of the deal to get the Saint on TV with Lou was that he had to agree to Charteris having most of his short stories adapted into the episodes. So from that point of view, we've talked about this in Gideon's Way, it's so much easier for the production crew and the script writers to have, instead of coming up with their own idea, they've got the genesis of a TV episode, okay, if if they literally translated that, it might only run for half an hour. So they have to introduce some sort of subplots and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it certainly assisted the production. And I think actually, you know, we all agree that the black and white episodes are so much stronger than the colour ones. And that has to be down to the fact that they predominantly come from Chartres' short stories, no matter how, you know, even if they came from the 20s and 30s and they might have felt a little bit dated in the 60s, they did a great job in adapting them. 
I think the interesting thing is if you look at the history of British television with crime fiction, either you've got brilliant source material, which doesn't quite adapt well to TV. So I'm thinking, for example, Inspector Rebus series, or you've got very much second rate books, such as the Inspector Morse books, which become better on TV. And I think that the Saint script writers do a brilliant job, because if you take something like The Saint Plays With Fire, for example, John Cruz with his script actually takes out a lot of the nauseating things, and there are plenty of them from Charteris's book, and all the little changes he makes are for the good. And I think those script writers, as a general rule, did a really good job with taking the good things and leaving out some of the absurd characters and, and little idiosyncrasies that Charteris's books have got. I just say I agree. Yeah, it's, um, it's like Harry Junkin said. The only problem was with them being such short stories. Chartres started with a, with a problem or a situation, which was the foundation of Act 1. And then tipping the scales, he went straight into Act 3. So the thing was, the writers had to be inventive in the middle to, to not, not pad it out, because I don't think they ever padded it out. I, I, I don't think it shows, really shows any signs of padding at all. It's just they had to rework that to make it work for television and, and they did and as Rodney said I think they did a marvellous job. I think also there is a, I think Dick Fiddy calls it a sanitization that has to obviously go on as well because mm. you can't have the saint Simon Templar on TV is going to have to be on the side of the angels he's yeah. not going to be able to wield a knife um, you know, you've got all of those. Uh, is it Bob Baker who describes it as a sort of a, the Marquis of Queensbury rules that he's going to have to play by? He can't yeah. kick someone in the balls, as Bob Baker points out. There is an awful lot of work that was still left to be done, wasn't there? And this is the irony with the Chartres' point of view as it changes, mm. because he did specify, particularly within the uh, rights assignment agreement, that the saint should always be promoted as a good guy. And, and, and he must have realised how that would have to come across on television. But then as the series progresses, he's complaining that his character has been emasculated by television. Mm. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a blatant contradiction. Can we just spin back a little bit there to Patrick Magoon? Because I, I would like to agree with you there, because I think the reason that Magoon couldn't have played the saint and Bob Baker said this himself is because he couldn't really handle the humor but also his absolute point-blank reluctance or refusal to fraternize with women on screen I don't really get what Lou was thinking there because McGowan had stated that in Danger Man and I think that he wouldn't have been right for it but the funny thing is about it is that Bob Baker actually met with McGowan and one of the cinema papers, the trade papers, the Daily Cinema, heard about this and ran the story that McGowan had been cast as Simon Templar. And of course, they had really did have egg on their face when a week later it was like, oh, no, he's not. Here's Bob Baker and Johnny Goodman, again from the DVD audio commentary. When we were discussing the same with Lord Grade, Lou Grade then, Sir Lou Grade, he suggested that we use Patrick McGowan as a saint since he has just done the series for them called Secret Agent. Anyway, we had a meeting with Patrick McGowan, and after the meeting, we decided that it definitely would not be the saint. He was aggressive, rather rude, and would obviously be very, very difficult, plus the fact that, that, that he didn't have the warmth and the humour that we felt that the saint should have. So uh, 
We spoke to Luke Rains and said, no, uh, Patrick McGoon wouldn't be right for the saint. Patrick McGoohan has a, a distinct dislike, apparently, to kissing ladies on the screen. McGoohan isn't good-looking enough to play the part. I mean, it, it, he's a nice-looking guy at that point. I think we probably all agree that one of the things, whether it's in the books or on TV, is when Simon Templer walks into a bar or a hotel lobby, all the women look at him and they want him, and all the men want to be him. There's an episode where you've got two sort of undergraduate barflies at the bar, and they're looking at him thinking, oh, we'd love to be like you. And I can't think of anyone else apart from Roger Moore at that point who we would believe that of. He looks so magnificent on screen. The hair, it, it, it's his whole physique. It's what he does with his face, not just his eyebrows. Everything about him exudes that charm and warmth. And I don't think even the biggest Patrick McGowan fan would say that on screen he exudes warmth. He's got a presence, but it's, it's not that sort of attraction. And the interesting point uh, to develop on from what Jazz said about the Magoon saga seems to be, as in the Robert Sellers book, Baker and Berman set up a private meeting with Magoon for uh, Harry Jonkin. And he just came back and said, you can't use this guy as Simon Templer. I mean, Craig Stevens was another name mentioned. And that's a strange one because... Yes, Peter Gunn, which I don't think was ever shown in the UK. Peter Gunn and The Saint do have quite a bit in common, including a certain, a real style. But I would have thought casting an American in that part would have been a strange decision. Mm -hmm. And considering the fact that Craig Stevens was in one of Hollywood's big, solid marriages to a very famous American actress, there's no way he'd have come over to Britain for the length of time that the saint ended up being on tv that probably would have been a one season series had they mm. cast craig stevens so how was i cast yeah. as a, as a, well as a uh, inter interestingly it so happened that roger was in italy at the time i think uh, making a film and um was available so we uh, wired roger asking him whether we'd like to pay the saint and I don't know. <laughs> Roger apparently said yes, so then we had a meeting and the things developed from there. There was another plus, of course, as well, because um, we knew instinctively that Roger Moore, kissing ladies on the screen, would not be a major problem. <laughs> and we knew that Roger liked kissing ladies, so <laughs> yeah. it, it all worked out fine. That is true. This is the perfect example of serendipity because Roger Moore was at a point in his career where, according to Bob Baker, basically his career had stalled. He was out in Italy making some awful epic, in inverted commas. He'd always wanted to be the saint. I think his father had said, you'd be a perfect Simon Templar. That's the sort of part for you. And along here he comes. He's, he's part of Lou Grade's theatrical agency wasn't he already and it's almost like all the pieces of a jigsaw fit together the series was perfect for roger moore and he's perfect for the series and, and every book you pick up whether it's robert sellers's book dick fiddy's book and, and countless others the one common denominator is everyone says inspired choice for simon templar we can't imagine anyone else doing it better we've said how stunning he looks on screen he does he looks stunning but he's different from the swashbuckling hero of Ivanhoe. He's different from the swaggery, maverick, card-playing hero. Those were essentially roles which pivoted on his looks. By the time he comes to Simon Templer, there's a maturity in his performance to back it up. 
part of the problem maybe with hindsight was the fact that Roger Moore has been sort of um, modest or he's tended to put his own acting down. And if you say that often enough, we'll believe it. Mm. And I think you've only got to rewatch those 71 episodes. I can't think of a single scene or a single moment in front of camera when I'm thinking, oh, really? Quite an interesting point, though, that Roger Moore signed on to do the same, but he was under the impression it was a 25 minute (laughs) series. And there was a press conference at ATV House in London on the 1st of May in 1962, where Lou Grade announced the show was going into production and that Roger Moore had signed on to be the saint for a series of 26 episodes. We should point that out. Originally, it was planned as 26 episodes. Here's Roger Moore again from the DVD audio commentary. And so when the saint came up after all these years, I knew the subject. It was something I'd wanted to do, so I had no hesitation. Yeah. And I thought, well, it'll you know do 13 episodes or 26 maximum. Uh, they'll, t- they'll take a week to do, so half a year, and I'm a walk away. And it's a nice script. There's a lot of writing there, so it's going to be able to tighten down. And so when Lou Grade made the announcement that he was, they were going to make this, that Bob Baker and Monty Berman were going to produce it, and Roger Moore was going to play Simon Templer, and they were going to make uh, 39 hours. I said, half hours. And he said, 39 hours. <laughs> and I grabbed Bob and I said, what is this? I thought these were half hours. He said, no, they're hours. My contract being drawn up on the premise that it would be a half hour, not an hour, which uh, made a lot of difference. Well, we got you cheap, Roger. You certainly <laughs> did. So the filming started in May 62, literally after that announcement. And the first episode was The Talented Husband. I really want to talk about the first time we see the saint post that teaser. So in the first episode, like all the episodes, we get to meet the very famous Simon Templer. But what I want to say about this is when we first see the saint after that, he's driving the Volvo, which is so sleek, and he's driving it through sort of sleepy home counties, lanes and towns, you know, it's Cookham. And when he gets out of his car, his suit is so pin sharp, he's so mod. And he's dragging England, literally, with him out of this post-war 50s. Like, this is the bright new 60s, and here I am, and you are either on this road with me, or or you're still stifling around. This is where I think the car and the star, you you can't separate them, because Mm -hmm. had it been a Jaguar, which was the, the first idea... Uh, The Jaguar wasn't something brand new, even if the type of Jaguar might have been. Uh, With the Volvo, this is a car which most people won't have seen before. And in a sense, uh, that is part of the the shock of the new that that, that we get, as you say, with with the character suddenly arriving and almost bringing the 60s in. I think there's a line in Robert Sellers' book where he says, with the arrival of the Saint and then the 007 franchise starting almost the following week, I think it was, the 60s had finally arrived. And there is that feeling, isn't there? When he gets out that Volvo in the home counties, wow, this is something a bit new. Yeah, and more the full Jaguar, because the story is, according to Johnny Goodman, who was on the production team, that they approached Jaguar and said, you're going to run this TV series, we need a car. Jaguar turned them down flat. So Roger said, right, okay, I'll buy a Jaguar, and that way we'll get one. And Jaguar said, well, if you want one, it's going to be three months until delivery. And like, they were like, well, we need a car next week. And even then Jaguar said no. 
Here's Johnny Goodman, again from the DVD audio commentary we recorded in 2005. But through circumstances, through a young friend of mine in the police force, I was told about a new car called a Volvo or something, having been turned down by Jaguar and God knows what. And I mentioned it to Roger, and um, he said, well, I'll go and have a look at it. And he phoned me up and said, it's very nice, very swish-looking car, lovely people, and they're very happy to loan us a car for the entire series and to give us a mock-up of the... Um, of the, of the interior so forth mm. for the studios and so um, the Volvo became the Saints car and I, I have to say I think and Roger would probably agree that it almost put Volvo on the map in, in our country anyway. Jaguar missed the biggest trick in the world there because Volvo's prestige rose from through this series it was the best advert they got the car really is the constant guest star. And the good thing about, in my opinion, in not choosing the Jaguar was even when you get to the end of the run, the P1800 is so scarce on British roads that it still remains a star and an impressive car. It's also a bit more out there, isn't it? It's yeah. a little bit different. I mean, we said with McGill that Hillman Imp was out there and different. And in a very different way, um, so is this car. And, yeah. and I love the fact that in a way, it's almost an imaginary car, if that makes sense, because in the books, his various cars are all made up. They're not yep. real cars. I think it's a Hirondelle and something else. Yep. And uh, in a sense, a Volvo is almost a fantasy car, isn't it? It's coming back oh. to what you said in the Man in a Suitcase podcast, Rodney. The car fits the character, and you've got McGill in a little discreet run up London runabout. And as you said, Jazz, when he's, he's in Cookham, he's in the home counties, it's swish, it's glorious, it's beautiful. And you've got this car with sleek lines and, and the wonderful design, the cow horn bumpers and the, and the sweeping metal detailing along the body. It's sleek, it's sharp. And, and as you say, when he gets out the car, he is just as sleek and sharp. I mean, how many times in, in the modern era have you seen somebody in a beautiful car and then you meet them in the car park and they get out and they're an absolute slob in jeans. <laughs> and and, and this, is, this is it with the P1800 and, and Roger. There's a sort of melding of character and car this mm -hmm. immaculate man yeah. gets out of this pin sharp car yeah and i think they're both timeless i mean after yeah. all simon templar is from a vanished age he, he's almost a knight errant from the 20s or 30s there are elements of that mm -hmm. and yet he fits seamlessly into the 60s and this car is timeless you look at these episodes now nearly 60 years on has that car dated in terms of style i still think it looks fabulous mm, no it's all. a it's a beautiful looking car you see them on the streets now or a very car show you know they're very rare you know, they still turn heads and they're still like wow uh, but also people say that's the car that the saint drove that point you made about the 60s sort of starting with the saint and james bond talented husband ed um in uk on ATV in London on Sunday the 30th of September 1962. That's a week before the Beatles debut single Love Me Do was released. I kind of have compared The Saint with the Beatles. I can't remember exactly what I said but I think Rodney's probably got it somewhere. I have, I, I can read you your wonderful quote if, you, if you'd <laughs> like that. You actually said, shows like The Saint and The Avengers mirror the development of The Beatles. The early albums and episodes show an idea of its forming and developing, but already mature and head of the pack. By the time they get to Revolver or the last run of the black and white episodes, they've developed, honed this to perfection. Then with Sergeant Pepper, 
started a color episode, a lot of what went before goes out the window. The style dominates over substance. By the end of the run, there's hardly any glue holding it together and everyone's looking forward to moving on to the next project. Thanks for reminding me what I said. I do very much feel that, that The Saint and The Beatles were kind of like a constant in the 60s and their development kind of mirrors each other. You know, I mean, they kind of mm-hmm. sit side by side. The time period is perfect, isn't it? 62 to 68 and the Beatles are just winding down and, and they're getting re- ready to disappear and... Roger's there, but he's, he's tired. I mean, he grew tired of it. Allegedly, he grew tired of it early on towards the end of the black and whites, but he's definitely tired by the time of 68. So it, it is virtually a mirror image. One thing we really should pick up on is the talking to camera. I've got a wonderful little quote here on a DVD commentary that I did with Roger Moore, Bob Baker and Johnny Goodman. And I asked them why the saint did this. It was part of Bob Baker's idea that uh, we should address the camera, take the audience into our sort of our little secret and share it with everybody. Yes, the, the whole point is this is um, a fairy story for adults. Uh, so <laughs> Which we... is why they had me playing the fairy. <laughs> 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 that is just Roger all over. But what I was going to say is that the great thing about the talking to camera is it allows the saint to set the scene very quickly, I think, without any long sort of preamble title teaser. I love the way Roger delivers the lines, but also this is a, a quite a unique thing, I think, because this is where TV influences cinema. And I can't think of any other thing around the time or earlier because Michael Caine in Alfie talks to the camera and that's a direct ripoff of Roger doing it in The Saint. But I think Roger talking to camera was a, a stroke of genius there. It's a masterstroke, but I mean, it is also breaking the fourth wall because you could have him just offering a little brief narration, which is what John Drake does in a half hour Danger Man. But the fact that he is breaking the fourth wall, talking to us by talking to camera, it's something which carries over in the series itself. You know, you think of the number of times we've got episodes based in TV studios, film studios. The Saint even arrives to be cast as himself in a film and you've got the strange dialogue i think it's with alfie burke you don't look like the saint but i am the saint well, yeah. what difference does that make <laughs> yeah it's wonderful yeah. And, and i think that that wonderful playfulness and almost sort of self-referentiality it's part of the show's charm we're going to look at some quite serious themes sometimes but we're never going to take ourselves totally seriously and i do love that it brings the viewer in straight away we are complicit in the adventure each monologue is like the once upon a time section of a fairy tale. And then we add to that unreality element to the show because we have the cartoon Halo. And this is all saying, come on, folks, this is going to be fun. Don't take this seriously. We're going to have a bit of an adventure. Isn't it in Luella where, of course, the Halo then reappears towards the end when he's pretended he's 007 and then reveals he's Simon Templar and we get the Halo again. I think those playful touches are just charming. That Luella close is a beautiful piece of self-reference. It it puts him strictly into that element of a fictional hero. You know 007, you've read 007, you've seen the movies. I'm the saint. And and everybody accepts that at the end of the episode. And I I think it's beautiful. It's a lovely little touch. One of the interesting things going back to the books, though, and I think this is a strong decision on the producer's 
part was there was no casting of Patricia Holm, who was like the Saints, inverted commas, girlfriend in the books. And I think that's a plus point, actually, because what it means is that you can have a new leading lady cast every week. And when we look at the leading ladies in this series, I think that's a huge, huge plus point. Often multiple leading ladies, often not just one. And to develop on that, they also cut down on the sidekicks because in different locations, he's got a a different regular sidekick. I think, Jazz, you you, you reminded me, we see Hoppy just the once, but I mean, (sighs) essentially... too many. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Essentially, the primary sidekick stroke foil is Claude Eustace Teal, and it's a perfect relationship. I do love the fact that also with, with the foreign and inverted commas episodes, there are also the, the Eustace Teal equivalents in, in mm. France, in, in the United <laughs> States, and often actually in the ones abroad, it's his sort of the sidekick to the inspector who becomes almost a friend of Templars during it. And again, just more charm and fun to the whole thing. I must admit, I found Warren Mitchell as Marco de Cesare, or whatever he is called, in the episodes that are based in Rome to be a real pain, to be honest. A bit like Hoppy. I I mean, I know he's there for comic relief, fair enough, but I I could deal without him. I think you pointed out when we were chatting across the week when we were preparing for this jazz, it's sort of like interchangeable with his little character in Danger Man and Brodsky in The Avengers and whatever, but but I quite like him. You were talking about, obviously, the female stars, and I'd pick up on what James Chapman says in his book Saints and Avengers, where he says that the glamorous young female stars are essentially decorative, Bond girls by any other name, and it is such crap. Because you've got some really meaty roles for for young women in this series. And they're playing the part of lawyers, journalists, investigators. Even in that first episode, Miss Eaton is a sort of insurance investigator. She's not some sort of dolly bird working behind the bar. So I really don't understand where he got that idea that they're just sort of decorative. I, I think that's really very unfair on the series. Me too. He clearly had not watched enough episodes, as I would say. The female parts in this, yes, there are some that are there for the semi-love interest of the saint, but he will always... That's the thing that really annoys me when they say, oh, he always gets the girl at the end of the episode. Lots of the episodes don't end like that at all. There are a few. Your point about Shirley Eaton being the insurance investigator is, is so right. And there are lots of parts like that throughout this 71 episodes so yeah he got that wrong thieves blackmailers murderers there's no limit to what women can do in the same sorry i was just going to say who is the king of the beggars it will it's that lady who's a contessa charitable countess all of those yeah Yeah, i mean one of the strongest characters for me is the thinly veiled prostitute in scorpion patsy butler Mm. Nairine Dalton Porter. That is a brilliantly well written and a superbly played role. And then you've got the confrontation scene between Justine Lord and the politician's wife at the end of Politician. That is a very grown up fairy tale. That character you're referring to there, Patsy Butler in The Scorpion. The way we see, as a piece of drama, when we first see her, and she's this really cocky, glamorous nightclub hostess with an evil grin. And then we end up seeing her terrified in her seedy bedsit when she thinks that her boyfriend, Eddie, is going to strangle her with her stockings. Wow. Mm. 
that's pretty dark you know it for is. a show which uh, perhaps people remember because of the the color series afterwards it was perhaps a little bit lighter on the whole you know that was pretty dark stuff in the scorpion yeah there's a lot of dark stuff going on in some of these episodes i think personally the show works best when it's based in england predominantly based in london and you get that kind of sleazy underworld like you see in the scorpion and saint plays with fire it's touching on in some ways on gideon's way in some of those storylines you know they're yeah. kind of like almost a saint version of that i think some of those tenements are the same ones yeah. I, I think they use some of those sort of sets for location ones I, I think some of them are the same and there are episodes like the, uh, one of the ones with harry tomb where he's trying to go straight and that is almost straight out of the gideon's way isn't it there is is the material that overlaps between them yeah that relationship particularly and the shooting of it the harry taub thing with claire kelly as his wife that is very gideon's way very of that period very sort of hard realism johnny amworth is a low-grade crook but there's that woman there who cares for him that is very very gideon's way to me sorry i was gonna say that's the high fence and that's the episode i think isn't it with james villiers uh, yeah. which offers a wonderful contrast we see for the first ever time that actually inspector teal has actually a very kind warm side to him he treats mm. them as potential victims whereas villiers just literally wants to throw the book at them doesn't he yeah that's a really interesting side to teal there and talking of teal we should really talk about Iverdeen because i think it took them a bit of time to get the right teal but once they got him, I thought he was sublime. Here's Bob Baker, again from the DVD audio commentary. We used several tills throughout the series until we finally settled on Ivor Dean, who was absolutely perfect for the part. Um, I did like the teal in Star in the Saint. Yeah, I did. Wensley Pithing. He's, he's more of a Gideon's Way teal, if you ask me. But I thought that he was good. But actually, once they establish Ivor Dean as Teal, that relationship that he and Moore have on screen is just brilliant. And yeah. I love the fact that occasionally, like the Saint, will buy him a pack of polos because he's addicted to mints and things like that. So they're, they're sort of playing with each other. I, I really like that. Well, it has a sort of comedy level, but you yep. get the feeling it goes a little bit beyond that as well, don't you? That there is a warmth or that there is a, a respect grudgingly. I love, for example, I think when in the earlier part of the episode for the scorpion, where they're discussing who the scorpion might be, that sheer look of joy when Claude says he thinks it might be the saint, the <laughs> joy over his face. The Saint was filmed at ABPC Elstree, which is now sadly mostly a Tesco. Although some of the episodes were obviously overseas, Rome, Paris, New York, Athens. But like I said, I think it works best when the series is set in the UK. One of the things there I was going to say is on those very early episodes, I'm sort of talking episodes two through to about ten, I think the series is struggling to find its way a little bit because there are some episodes where Roger speaks with a mid-Atlantic accent and you know they're the ones that are based in New York or something like the Golden Journey um, or the Pearls of Peace are kind of a bit moralistic and I think once we get over that the run of episodes up until right at the end are so strong you know, there's not really a bad story after that at all. Not saying those ones are bad, but they're just not in the same league as any of the others we've mentioned. 
Well, I think one of the things we, you sort of tend to forget by the time you get to episode 71 is that actually Roger Moore is off camera quite a lot in those early episodes. Even that very first one, The Talented Husband, I haven't timed it, but there's an awful lot of that episode that doesn't have him in it. And I think what you do realise in those already cracking episodes, whether it's something like Star in the Saint or The Scorpion, etc., is that you can't actually have him on camera too much. He carries the show, and marvellously yeah. so. Like no other ITC actor, I think. I think McGowan comes close, but I think that Roger Moore really carries the Saint like no other actor. I do like some of those fake locations. So I'm thinking, for example, that the saint sees it through, where there's this really delightful beer cellar in Hamburg. I think it's called Tanta Adders. And then you've got the German back streets. I do think that, you know, with the minimum of fuss, and whether it's the legendary palm tree or, or it's, it's a Parisian table or whatever, I think we're very happy to accept with somewhere else. Well, it's Monty's penchant for stock footage. I mean, I, I read somewhere that he never travelled without a camera and he was always filming wherever he was abroad. Must have been hell for his poor wife on holiday. He was always building up his catalogue of stock footage. But what I do love about the black and whites, and it's a particular thing about black and white, black and white is hard to light, but black yeah. and white is so forgiving to the artifice of filmmaking. It makes the sets look lovely. They merge well. You can assimilate the stock footage reasonably well. Back projection, maybe not so much, but what I love about these black and white shows is the specific contemporary second unit stuff they went out and shot deliberately. So every time you hit the centre of London, I'm always looking for what's on at the London Pavilion. Yeah, talk of the town and all that that, that you yeah. always use, don't they? And that sort of Spanish sort of back lot, was it from a Cliff Richard film? I can't remember. That you've got at Elstree, you know, okay, it gets used a lot in this series, but I think it works well for sort of back alleyways on a Greek island or wherever it might be. I think it's in Teresa, which is meant to be Mexico. Uh, and you've got Mar Maitland, who's this sort of assassin who I think the uh, Templar calls him the shadow with a knife. And, you know, that wonderful lighting that they give this black and white series. It, it's just perfect for those sort of um, little furtive moments and scenes, I think. Sometimes I think it can be a bit restrictive. I think it's on King of the Beggars when you've got the initial rundown at the start of the episode. As the car speeds away, you can see what seems to be the side of a soundstage through the arch. And I think the use of all backlot in that episode particularly restricts John Gilling's direction. You made a good point about Monty Berman there because I often talk about Bob and Roger and I suppose it's because I got to know them. But we shouldn't overlook Monty's contribution to this because although people used to say, oh, we'd be on set with a stopwatch, I think that the pairing of Bob Baker and Monty Berman really make The Saint and Gideon's Way work exceptionally well on TV. Okay, Bob was much more relaxed and a bit more sort of kind of artistic, whereas Monty was more regimented and had to get the job done. But I think the two really complemented each other on these two shows. You couldn't have done 71 episodes without the two of them, no Mm -hmm. way. And to do the, the Gideon's Way at the same time. Yeah, this is it when you consider they're doing the Gideon's Way in tandem and you look at a standard production schedule for a single episode for back then and, and the cross-plotting you have to do with cameramen, second unit, guest stars, where you lead actors at any given time, whatever, and you're doing that twice over. 
you've got to have a strong admin core and I get the impression that Monty was that. There's a wonderful quote from Roy Wardbaker who says that he was directing an episode that was meant to be based in France and it started to rain and Roy Wardbaker said to Monty I don't, I don't think we can film this and Monty went well you don't think it ever rains in France get on with it. <laughs> And you almost need that practical approach sometimes. And of course he was right. As someone who lived in France for years, mm -hmm. I can reassure him it rains in France quite a lot. We should talk about Leslie Charteris writing to Bob Baker about the scripts because he was, he was pretty harsh in what he said about lots of the scripts. And he was particularly harsh about Harry Junkin, who he took a huge dislike to. And lots of this correspondence is available in the wonderful book by Burl Bearer. But if you read that book, you'll see quite how, well, I'd say rude, Charteris was about the scripts and the episodes. Harry Junkin was actually sort of quite pleased with the Junkin comment, wasn't it? I mean, he, he yeah. threatened to frame it and sort of keep yes. it, etc. But I mean, to be fair to Charteris, he wasn't the only one who wasn't too keen on Harry Junkin, was he? Uh, I know Philip mm. Broadley, for example, wrote one script and said he'd never work for Junkin again. It, 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 the guy drove him mad. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know, was he a certain type of script editor? Was he very pernickety or what was it that upset one or two of the script writers? I think Bob Baker said essentially they had a good crew of writers, but 20% of the scripts would still have to be rewritten by either him or Harry Junkin. I don't know, because obviously Junkin passed away before I don't think anyone got a real chance to speak to him, interview mm -hmm. him. I just detect that he was probably a little bit pedantic. But, I mean, yeah. Charteris wouldn't have been happy with anything, would he? I mean, no. I know he sort of offered a certain amount of praise to John Cruz and Terry Nation maybe a little bit, but I get the feeling that Charteris wouldn't have been happy with anything that they came up with. At the end of it, though, he got paid a lot of money and it made yep. the same very, very popular and he probably sold buckets more books. I mean, there were, there were tie-in books in many many countries from spain through to portugal to the united states all off the back of the tv series so you know he was laughing all the way to the bank with this well his name appears before roger moore's on the title i mean i can't think of many examples of that it's certainly something that creasy didn't get with gideon's way isn't it so talking to the titles, I love the fact that the title sequence is only literally 30 seconds long and then you're straight into the story. You know, you don't, you get the animated stick man, you get Leslie Charteris, you get Roger Moore, you don't need any more than that. And then the sort of on-screen titles do the rest. So again, I, it's just kind of everything was like, when I say tight, I don't mean mm -hmm. financially tight. I mean, we spoke earlier about them not being slack or dragging in any way. None of the episodes are really like that. And I think that's, that goes for the, for the titles as well. Yeah, it's that economy of storytelling, I think. I don't call it that in a negative fashion. They do draw you in straight away. Bang, bang, there you are. The Stickman is also iconic, isn't it? We talked briefly about the budget at the start of this. I've done a little bit of research. The budget was getting on for £30,000 an episode in 1962. ABC's Avengers was £5,000 an episode. That just goes to show the huge difference in production values between a contemporary show that wasn't being made on film. If I'm allowed to come back on that slightly, 
I think it's very difficult to compare the ITC shows with the ABC shows because you know, ITC is aiming at something cinematic for the small screen, something that's going to be a real international success. Uh, whereas, you know, shows like Armchair Theatre at the time that ABC were making, they're aiming at something very, very different, aren't they? In many ways, I think shows like Public Eye, The Avengers, The Honor Blackman Era, Armchair Theatre, their small budgets isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, you know, it forces the directors and the set designers to be innovative. Peter Hammond to shoot through a mirror to suggest the room's large. I think they're just very, very different. I don't think the same would have worked in a studio bound. You know, we've said about if the BBC had bought it or if Brian Tesla had said yes. The Saint needs that cinematic appeal. So in a weird way, I think Armchair Theatre works brilliantly because the budget's small. The Saint works brilliantly partly because the budget's big. But I don't think the things that make the Saint work brilliantly necessarily always come down to budget. You can have a huge budget and create crap, can't you? I mean, look at the Val Kilmer Saint film. Absolutely, yeah. That was $90 million that film cost, and it's mm. crap. I think, you know, ITC, with, with, you know, we've talked, haven't we, with the previous podcast, it is trying to create cinema for a small screen, and I think that's one of its unique appeals. And it probably shows even more now than it would have done back in 1962, doesn't it? We're probably enjoying the show even more now because they had the foresight of 35 millimeter film, wonderful location filming in the home counties and in London. And we probably benefit now in a way that maybe the viewer didn't in 1962. You're right, because if you think that all these shows are being shown in black and white on the, a very small monitor, 425 line, maybe 525 line, whatever. Like we said earlier, now with DVD restoration, Blu-ray restoration, huge monitors, the ability to pause, rewind, <laughs> you know, freeze frame, get a street name. It's just such a different viewing experience. I think that they look more stunning now than they probably did when they were first shown. A more, a more international appeal. And we still have them. I'm thinking, you know, Public Eye, Doctor Who, The Avengers, they're all shows where there are episodes that have disappeared into oblivion forever. We've got these shows forever because of the way they were made. As you say, the technology of now does help us appreciate the scope of things. I mean, when you look at some of those sets that you walk into for the Saint, things like John Carson's set, home set in Sabao, it's immense. Even from episode one, when you're doing just the basic set up in the talented husband of the Clarence house you get such a sense of space now and, and, and you wouldn't have got that on your small home television back in the 60s is it Roy Ward Baker who describes these as mini movies he basically says for him he was shooting a 52 minute movie each time he went on the Saints set and yeah. I think that speaks volumes doesn't it you can see how inspired the television treatment is by cinema, that you've got genre stuff, you've got lovely film noir style lighting. And I find this an amazing thing to say because a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about Lionel Baines in terms of being somebody detrimental to the making of Man in a Suitcase. And yet you've got him lighting these black and white saints beautifully. I was going to say about the lighting is, is so beautiful and so artistic. What's good about the way these are lit is where you get episodes like the Scorpion, where you need that kind of dark and grit and shadow, you get it. 
but then when you get a beautiful or glamorous lady that needs all the light they're given it and it's so different from where you look at the series in color where you lose all that shadow and you lose all that grit because the whole set is just being swamped with light just to make it work artistically they're a million miles apart well, you think of Dudley Sutton on his motorbike trying to hunt down, is it Philip Latham playing the part yeah. in Scorpion? And I can't imagine that scene working nearly as well in colour. It has real menace. It's got grit and you can see so much variety of film genre in the television series. They really are making small movies. <laughs> The series was hugely popular. It sold in France and Spain and Germany, Australia, Canada, US, where it went into syndication first and became very popular in syndication and earned ITC a lot of money. The series did so well in US syndication that NBC picked it up and said, we want the same, but we want it in colour. So anyone who thinks that syndication is not necessarily a good thing is wrong there because syndication is actually good because it gets your shows to all the tiny little relay stations in effect and gets you very large local audiences well they were very disparaging at the beginning weren't they when lou grade took an episode over there and i think the americans said i've never seen such a load of crap mm. and they were surprised at how popular it was in syndication and i think it made them think three times because whenever it was put on, whatever time of night, it beat the opposition, didn't it? I'd like to talk about Bob Baker directing a few of them because it's a nice thing for him to do. But also he didn't do it that often. But the one that he did do that was very close to his heart in terms of subject matter was The Saint Plays With Fire, which I think personally is definitely one of the best three episodes by a long way. I think that he directs that absolutely beautifully and I think it's a very strong story. Obviously very political and an issue that never seems to be going away in England. It's as topical today as it ever was and that opening monologue is one of the pieces that demonstrates Roger's range of acting. He's quite forceful in there. Well yeah. I think it was a subject that was, as you say, was close mm. to his heart, wasn't it? Mm. And again it sort of links to Gideon's Way. There is a, a similar episode in a way, isn't there? Yep. Yeah, there's this sort of whole rise of fascism, which, yes, as we've said, sadly never goes away. It is a very, very strong episode in terms of direction and obviously in subject matter. To think so closely after the war had ended and you're coming up with a script that used the term the final solution, that is pretty scary. Well, obviously, Bob, Monty and Johnny Goodman were all very serious practicing Jews. In fact, Bob was one of the first British soldiers into Berlin, into the Reichstag. There's a very famous photo of him that's in the Imperial War Museum, and it was also in his study at his house. But also, I wanted to talk about Roger's directing in this because we talked about him directing on Persuaders in the podcast we did for that, but he directed um, five of the black and white episodes and i really like the directing he did on the miracle tea party which i thought was a great story particularly all the stuff at waterloo station where i thought he handled those scenes really nicely 
the opening just flows. I mean, he said himself, we couldn't time trains to the director's liking, so you just had to take what you were given. And I was directing, uh, and it was at Waterloo Station. And I had to time everything to the clocks because I was having people getting on trains at Vauxhall and coming in and having a camera on the clock and moving down and seeing them getting off the train and coming, which we couldn't control the trains. could control the crowds to a certain extent. And the, the morning of shooting, I had done, worked out all the setups without me in them. So I had on an old hat and uh, sort of scruffy clothes and hoping I would get away without and, and it was stuck on a moustache. And my mother, unbeknownst to me, and Carmen was standing at the back of the people watching and she heard somebody say, Oh, that Roger Moore. Oh, he looks so smart on telly, don't he? Don't look very good here. <laughs> the way he, const- he constructed that opening sequence, there's minimal dialogue, the story moves quickly, you know what it's about. It's really, really smoothly directed and he seemed to choose his scripts for his directorial efforts very well. Well, I mean, that's a beautiful teaser, isn't it? Because there's humour. He sort of snarls almost like a dog to try and get ahead in the queue. But then we've got this almost Hitchcock-esque sort of murder in the actual phone booth. I think it's a beautifully directed episode. I mean, I always remember the high-speed race with Fabia Drake back to London as they're chasing the train type thing. It's beautifully shot. That's a bit 39 steps, I suppose. It is. Mm. Um, But Fabia is set up as one of those wonderful, great English eccentrics that they seemed to always love in the Avengers. But she really nails it. She's a wonderful character. There's another sequence in there talking of Roger's direction. That cat and mouse sequence in The Chemists when he's trying to get into Osbert's and find the information and whatever. That is so well done. I mean, the camera moves, the use of handheld camera. He builds the tension. It's a really beautiful piece of directing from Roger. And another episode, if you like Roger's directing, that I think is a bit of a standout one is uh, one called The Contract. He also directed Sophia, which was kind of more of a studio-bound episode. I think we spoke about that backlot, that Spanish town backlot. That was predominantly around that one. The Man Who Could Not Die in the Old Treasure Story. But um, Miracle Tea Party is the one that I think sticks out of the five that he directed in that black and white uh, run. We should talk about the location work, really, because there's a lot of location filming in the black and white season of The Saint. My bugbear in terms of now being able to watch these on DVD at our leisure, is the double for Roger Moore is appalling. It's not even close. I mean, I I think I had a sort of rant that I directed towards Smudge the other week, and I said to him, this is really doing my head in, because they're not even similar. No, come on. Roger had that luxurious head of hair, and short of investing in a very expensive wig, where are you going to find somebody who who looks even vaguely like (laughs) him? But it is, it is painful, yes, it is noticeable. But going back to the location, there's some great stuff you mentioned earlier, Smudge, about sort of seeing what's on at the cinemas in London or whatever. They handled the location work really well in this. And obviously because they're doing Gideon's Way at the same time, where there's, again, lots of location work. I think the crews on this are not really given credit for the location work. I think everyone thinks that the Black and White Saints are very studio-bound, but they're not. There are episodes that we've spoken about that do seem 
more studio bound than others but once you get into those stories like the scorpion like the miracle tea party like the saint place with fire like the contract like the setup you do get london street scenes and really good use of them beautiful home counties stuff as well i mean i'm thinking of something like the imprudent politician that's just wonderful uh, location work on that again that always feels like a mini movie to me because there seems to be so much packed into just 52 minutes and you've got london in there but i think you've also got bray or maidenhead isn't it for maidenhead, the riverside yeah. bits just beautiful work and kudos too to the second unit for the wonderful night London car chases they did. Some of those chase sequences are really nicely filmed. Just going back to Imprudent Politician there, where you're talking about the river and the sort of boating marinas, there's a really quite eye-opening shot where Roger's getting garroted in that boat shed. (laughs) It's quite gruesome, even for now, let alone what it would have been like when you were watching it on TV 1963, whatever. Yes, there's a lot of dark slayings or set-up slayings in the black and whites. I mean, you mentioned the garroting. That is particularly vicious. Very similar is where Paul Stasino is killing off the guy in the Rough Diamonds. Again, yeah. it's a double-knotted rope, and, and you, you mm. know it's going to be nasty. And the, um, the hanging in the Happy Suicide. How effective is that when you hear the knock, 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 and mm. there he is, he's, he's gone. But even Simon Templer trying to burn through the ropes with his lighter in St. Place with Fire, that's fairly visceral, that is. Mm. I mean, you know, you, you see bits on camera, you can yeah. feel the pain. Yes, that, that is striking that you actually, because you see that sort of escape methodology in many a film and TV series, but you don't see it to that degree where, as you say, they do show the burns on his hands. Well, I, th- I think that scene uh, encapsulates what makes the saint perfect because you've got a very, very straight scene, as I say, that's fairly hard hitting. And then right at the end, when Justine Law drops the lighter, doesn't she? And he says to her, well, I was trying to give up smoking anyway. So we get a wonderful, we get a wonderful throwaway line at the end. So you've got the law. And I mean, this is the thing that the drama is leavened with humour. But almost immediately after this, you've got the climax of the episode. And there is palpable tension when you think the Justine Lord character is about to be shot. Also in that, she says, what are they going to do? And he says, they're going to kill us. And she looks terrified because she realises actually what she's been involved with. But also she knows that the saint, when he says that, he means it. We've spoken very briefly about Roger's clothes and suits in The Talented Husband, but throughout this run, he looks absolutely immaculate. His suits are so sharp. And even when he sort of goes more leisurely, when he's wearing a roll neck or a polo neck with a blazer or a safari suit, he just still looks so bloody good at it, you know? It's so frustrating in a way. This is one of the advantages over The Persuaders. In The Persuaders, I'm afraid Roger Moore's clothes do date the show in a way. It's only a minor gripe of mine. But um, in The Saint, there's nothing he's wearing that you think, oh my goodness, look, look at that. Well, that's dated. This is timeless again. He'd look great whether that was 1930s, 60s or 2020, wouldn't he, in those? And as Rodney will observe, his hair is always immaculate, even after the <laughs> most ferocious scrap. You could pick up one of those vintage 60s suits and walk out in it now, and nobody would bat an eyelid, really, because mm. they are quite sort of sharp and smart. And 
Yeah, Bob and Johnny and Roger on a commentary said that. They said that they felt the fashions were almost contemporary to this day. Well, I think this is the magic, and it's a very narrow historical period, maybe about 1962 till 67. There's something about the fashions, cars, almost everything that it does seem timeless. Obviously, it's not but it feels like that. It's that golden period, as you say, Rodney, where consistently generation after generation has referred back to that period. So bits of that period are always coming through, be it when we were teenagers, the teenagers of now, the coming teenagers, there are always bits and pieces of that particular 1960s period being referenced. Yeah, well, I think it's where really the 60s kicked off. You know, the teenagers themselves first had the chance to have not only money, but to like things that their parents knew that they wouldn't necessarily like. So they had the Beatles that probably their parents might have liked, and they had the Saint that they might have liked. But they also had the Stones, which probably the parents hated. So it really was when teenagers had their own identity. And I think this is where, you know, when you were saying earlier about the sort of budgets compared to somewhere like ABC, this is the huge advantage we have now that we can sit there and watch a saint and it just looks so fabulous. That period almost deserves that 35 millimeter film so we can enjoy the location filming, we can enjoy his suits, whatever else it is, just looks brilliant. I was going to say, what do you guys think of the opinion expressed in the Sellers book by Robert Tronson that all Roger was concerned about at that point when he was directing A Saint was the push to be James Bond? I don't know, because I think between when the show started, 62 to 65, even though he got a little bit tired of it by the end of 65, on screen he gives his all in everything, whether that be a fight, whether that be tenderness towards women, and like we've spoken earlier about how good an actor he was, Connery wasn't going anywhere. And who knows what the Bond franchise was going to do? You know, for all we know, when Connery quit, they could have said, right, that's enough. So I think that Robert Tronson was a little bit unfair. I think so, yes. Like you say, I think Roger was totally committed to his series. Uh, and one thing we haven't touched upon yet is the wonderful support he got from the guest casts that he had. They, I mean, a lot of the quality of the show, Roger carries the show, but a lot of the additional quality comes out in the guest cast. Absolutely. If you force me to take one onto a desert island, I might take something like The Imprudent Politician. And if you take that episode and you read through the guest cast where you've got Justine Lord as the wonderfully cynical girlfriend who's a blackmailer, you've got Jeremy Burnham and Mike Pratt, Anthony Bate, Maxwell Shaw, Michael Goff, Gene Marsh, bloody hell's bells. How many more do you need, you know? Yeah. What a cast. Amazing cast. There's an interesting alignment there, really, because Sibau is kind of almost like a condensed version of Live and Let Die. So if Roger did want to do Bond, he was proven he could do it literally in that episode. It's perhaps unfair to compare them, but I tell you what, I'd rather watch Saint episode than a lot of the 007 films. I think these are movies in themselves. You don't need to be in cinema to make a movie. And these really are films. When I rewatched Sibou the the other week, I was thinking, crikey, I feel like I have watched an entire film. And the, the thing is, compared to Roger's personal 007 output, You've got a very different Roger in The Saint. I mean, look at the commitment in the fight scenes. Every fight scene is really tight. And you look at the camera, just catches Roger's face, and you can see that he means it. 
And that's something you didn't get for most of his Bond films, apart from perhaps for your eyes only. I would argue he's too old to play Bond. I think here we get him at his physical peak. He's beautiful. He can fight. He can flirt. He can do the lot. Wouldn't disagree. Yeah, well, I agree with that as well. Looking back on them, the fights really are tight and good and very dramatic. I mean, you've got stuff like where Robert Brown's attacking him with a crowbar and you've got that sort of point of view handheld stuff. Uh, and some of these fights are really vicious and you can see Roger going for it. And it is far better than some of his Bond stuff. And a lot of those fights are the baddies. The baddies are wielding knives, which I always notice in it because it's one thing, two guys on a set shooting from a distance. When someone is wielding a knife in your face, there is something really sort of visceral and physical about that. And so obviously, even though Templar can't carry a knife, they have carried that over from the series. Oh, sorry, from the, from books. the books, haven't they? Yeah. Compared to, let's say, either Danger Men or 007, again, one of the things I love about The Saint is he doesn't have a boss. I love the fact that basically he's driven by his own moral code. And it might be a slightly grey moral code at times, but there are certain things he won't stand for, including obviously blackmail. And I just love the fact that rather than someone giving him a ring and saying, right, you need to go and do X or Y, with the Charteris books, I prefer the books when he's working under his own steam rather than doing something because a government agency has told him to. This saint that we get in the black and white is the personification of natural justice. And that Robin Hood element, I think, in there, isn't there? There are episodes where the saint veers into slightly different territory. For example, in The Inescapable Word, where it's almost, well, it is sci-fi in a way. And I think that episode works in black and white, whereas when they try again and do it in colour with the story that was originally The Man Who Liked Ants, House on Dragon's Rock, and The Convenient Monster, it just doesn't work. No, that Misty Moore atmosphere you need in the Scottish Highlands in Inescapable Word, it just works brilliantly. I, I think it, in colour, it, it would have looked artificial, probably. The colour ones are more fantastical premises for both stories. This Inescapable Word is fairly sort of hard science grounded as well, I think. It's deftly done. There's some lovely bits of menace in the Inescapable Word where, you, you know, we've got the mysterious attacker and it's cut so well that you barely see him it does add atmosphere to it and spirit to it and the end sequence for a piece of science fiction is quite well done too i think it's more grounded than than most other sort of dips into science fantasy oh, i was just going to add to that the root of it is probably the fact that the story is slightly well it is cold war based isn't it because the scientist is russian and i think there is almost a slightly buccan-esque side to it one of you mentioned John Buchan earlier, and, and there is that 39-step side to Simon Templar in that episode in particular. That episode where, of course, the scientist doesn't want him to unlock the door, does he? There's a wonderful line in there where Templar says, when he's then offered the door open, and of course he's already seen what's inside, he says, you know, doors only hold an attraction for me when they're locked. <laughs> and he has those lovely little lines that pepper all the scripts. This is the mould of the hero, like you're saying, John Buchan, because some early critics in the newspaper said that the Simon Templar of television was nothing more than a cardboard cutout. But I, I would strongly disagree with that. He's a rounded character. He's got compassion. He's got empathy. I, I think he's a pretty well-rounded person. 
he's got those grey areas. I mean, I think in that teaser to Imprudent Politician, the MP's wife is shocked to see him in the visitor's gallery, isn't she, at the House of Commons. She said, why are you here where laws are made, not broken? That's also part of his charm, the roguish side. I know they played it down a bit, but they did allow it to come across in the TV show. We should talk about the actresses. And one actress in particular I'd like to talk about is Justine Lord. Having watched so many of these episodes, the variety that she delivers in her performances is pretty outstanding, really. I love the episodes where she has got a darker side. I mean, there's a wonderfully cynical line in Imprudent Politician when basically she's about to get dumped by the MP. She says, oh, is it time to clean up your public image? And of course, that hasn't dated at all, has it? So many of those parts she plays have got layers, which again, coming back to James Chapman's comment about these characters being decorative. I mean, even in the same place with Fire, that's not a decorative character. She's actually got quite a dark parasitical side to her hasn't she and that almost comes back to burn her ass in the cellar at the end i mean even though it's a put-up job she's quite happy to resort to some sort of blackmail in that episode in the um, imprudent politician back to the strength of the female characters that were written here the closing argument between the two women the politician's wife says to her are you capable of anything original and she just looks her straight in the eye and says ask chris ask the <laughs> husband that is a very grown-up way to end the conversation. That's a hell of a scene, that one, with the two of them together. Sorry, in Saint Step Scene, she was quite sort of vampish and, and again, essentially superficial at the start of the episode. But then as things go on, you see how the character changes and you see the sort of width of the range of the actress as well. Yeah, well, her father's the bastard in it, isn't he? You know, mm. Geoffrey Keane, he's kind of doing Thaddeus Crane, but seven years earlier, or however many it is. That's an episode where, obviously, you've got Annette Andre as well as Justine Lord, you know, hence why I was saying earlier that often we've got more than one very attractive, interesting female character rubbing across um, Simon Templar, probably not the best term to use. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should imagine most of them did, to be honest. Sylvia Sims is someone who appears you know, more than once in the series, and I think she's the perfect example of an actress who certainly isn't decorative. She's not your stick-thin, stereotype, young, blonde actress. There's real depth to her character, particularly when she plays the pearl thief in the episode set in Paris. The other one that sort of struck me re-watching the series was Julie Christie. And I note, obviously, this is a Julie Christie before she becomes you know, a world-famous actress. And I noticed that Bob Baker had said somewhere that when they actually shot that episode with Julie Christie, she kept fluffing her lines and they had to break the scenes up into four or five sections. But the minute he looked at the rushes, he said, wow. He said, there is a future star. Here's Roger Moore, again from the DVD audio commentary we recorded in 2005. We were talking about this the other day, Bob and I, the, 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 a number of sort of girls that were unknown that came along and afterwards sort of became stars, one being Julie Christie. And Julie Christie, <laughs> big... Uh, Contratant because she, she wouldn't <laughs> clean her nails. <laughs> yeah, she was going to be replaced, but you suddenly saw her on the screen, you realise the girl had a magic star quality. And interestingly, the one other person he bracketed with Julie Christie was Donald Sutherland for the role he played, which is a really un Donald Sutherland ITC role, isn't it? 
what in the happy suicide yes yeah very much so yeah I I mean, was... we're not we're not used to seeing him as a victim and actually he plays that sort of drunk my life has been ruined by this evil tv star um zaglan i think he's absolutely brilliant in that part the pinnacle of that for me is that scene where roger confronts him it's the strongest scene of the uh, episode and in discussing what happened Donald Sutherland's character has to finally accept the truth about his sister and that is such a hard thing such a hard scene and, and so well played from both sides from Roger and Donald another actress I'd like to give a shout out for is Suzanne Lloyd absolutely brilliant in Luella playing that sort of sparkling feuding Cary Grant style screwball comedy with David Hedges and they work so well together and then you see her in the high fence in that wonderful disguise as yeah. the Irish waitress in the cafe and she comes home to Roger in the evening and says oh my feet are hurting all the way up to my hips <laughs> wonderful actress really sparkles with Roger or with David I thought Dawn Adams was always good in what she did. She was in The, the Lawless Lady, as mentioned earlier. She was in The Fellow Traveller, where she's playing this Hungarian... Well, she's, she escaped the revolution, and there's a bit of politics in that that I quite liked, where it's actually sort of setting it to be contemporary. And, and I think she's great on screen. She always sparkles against Roger when they're together. And she obviously went on to do some colour episodes as well. But yeah, the list of leading ladies in this, just stunning, really. I mean, anyone who was, anyone was in the show. I do think The Saint perhaps has a reputation that James Chapman uses about this sort of decorative female, and it just simply doesn't bear scrutiny. I think overall, it's a particularly well-remembered series, and a lot of people seem to think of the series in quite a light vein. But when you come back to them, there's a heck of a lot of hard drama and, and stark reality in these shows. It wasn't superficial. I think that obviously when they tend to see episodes, perhaps they tend to see the ones that are more like Luella, and they don't tend to see episodes like, say, The Scorpion. You know, we have to remember how popular The Saint as a TV series was. And I'm not talking the whole run here. I'm talking about the black and whites. The black and white series was popular to a huge extent throughout the world. I mean, that's why it went into colour, because of the popularity. But, you know, I've got in my archive TV listings, magazines from all over the world. Lots of them are from the black and white era, from say from Mexico from 1962 or from Australia from 1964 France from 65 this black and white run was a very very popular series and you can see why I mean Roger not only carries it he's got such charisma he can do the fights he's got a great car they're globe trotting even though they're predominantly in Elstree there's an internationalist feel to it and vision. I mean, it's not hung up on post-war 50s Britain, you know, and that we've still got an empire. This is very much a forward-thinking saint and saint series. And I think when you mention empire, one of the intriguing things about Simon Templar is his sort of political views. On the one hand, I think some people think of Templar as being very much sort of a pro-monarchy and everything else. He actually has quite a sort of anti-establishment side to him as well, doesn't he? I mean, it's made quite clear, for example, he hates shooting, as in he hates the pheasant shooting at the beginning of that episode we mentioned earlier. Inescapable he, word. He really dislikes the nouveau riche. He can't stand snobbery. He's got class, 
but he can't stand the snobbishness of society. Mm. And so there is almost an anti-establishment side to him as well, which, which again, I particularly like. I think that's particularly picked up in a single sequence uh, towards the end of Imprudent Politician, where he's trying to find out who Mr. Big is, who's running this behind this country house, Agatha Christie mystery thing. There's a point where he specifically says he doesn't care about the outcome for Chris. He doesn't care about the outcome for his wife. He's not supporting that sort of level of the establishment in any way. He just wants to solve the mystery and for his own satisfaction, for his own ends, whatever they may be. So overall, if we were summing up the saint, I would say by far the black and whites are obviously better than the colours. But also I think it's the most iconic ITC series. I think it's the black and white ITC series that works best. That's not that I don't think any of the other black and white shows aren't good. I just think that Roger can do the range and variety of acting as him head and shoulders above some of the other actors. So for me, if, if I was to say to anyone, if you're going to watch a black and white series and get a feel of ITC, what it's like, if you've not seen it, I would say watch The Saint. And I'd say watch some episodes like The Scorpion, The Saint Place with Fire, The High Fence, any of those. And you will honestly be hugely impressed with the car, the cast, the locations, but most of all, you'll be impressed with Roger Moore. The black and white saint is the gold finger of ITC. It's, it's, it's a foundation stone. It's, it's what sets the rest of the series to follow. Yeah, I mean, I'd say stealing something from Jazz's quote that I used earlier, this is the show that provides the style and the substance in, in equal measure and balance. If you're not convinced that Roger Moore is a three-dimensional actor, watch the black and white episodes, the variety in terms of locations and storylines, the wink to the camera, which isn't just in the teasers. I think this show has a lot. And on that note, we'll say goodbye. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me also. And we'll see you very soon for another episode of ITC Entertain the World podcast. You have been listening to episode six of the ITC Entertain the World podcast. It was hosted by Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall, and Alison. It was a bitter and twisted production for the morning after.